Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. Longtime listeners of the show know we spend a lot of time looking at and projecting where product building might be going next. But this week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're actually going to peel things back and take you behind the curtain at Intercom to reflect on how product management has evolved as we've scaled and ultimately what your product team can learn from our own challenges and the changes we've made along the way. To do just that, our co-founder, Des Trainer is joined on this episode by two group product managers who have been instrumental in shaping everything from our platform and messenger to all of our marketing and support products. You'll meet Brian Donahue, the product management mind behind Intercom Educate and Resolve. As a PM, you should acutely feel the pain of saying no, because if it doesn't hurt to say no, like you're probably not doing something right. And Colin Bentley, who looks after Intercom Engage and the platform at the foundation of everything we build. We have a a mantra that we uh, have around thinking big and starting small, and we now have that process actually much more mapped out in our development process. Together, Colin and Brian relive what has and hasn't gone to plan the past few years, how they managed to stay close to customers while rising up the management ranks, what they've learned about how product and marketing need to work together, and much more. If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom interviews, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and please shoot us a rating or review. We value your feedback, and it helps us bring new listeners to the show. And now, let's hop into the studio with Des Trainer, Brian Donahue, and Colin Bentley. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast. Today, I'm joined by Colin Bentley and Brian Donahue, two of our group product managers. And to get started, maybe we'll just do a quick introduction. Colin, could you explain what you do at Intercom? Why do we pay you money? <laughs> hey, Des. Uh, so I'm a group product manager here at Intercom, and I looked after two main areas of our product. First, the Engage product, which is all about messaging customers, from one-to-one messaging to full uh, newsletters you're sending to thousands of people. Um, and then I also have recently taken over our uh, free product, uh, which is primarily about where we store our users and represent the users that you have inside uh, your customer base, but also looks after some of the more horizontal parts of the application, like settings, navigations, etc. Awesome. Um, Brian, you're also a group product manager. What do you do? Why do we pay you money? I ask myself that question a lot, Des. <laughs> and, uh, but the reason... I think it's basically because I'm the group PM for our support product. So Educate, which is our product for helping customers help themselves. Uh, and that actually just launched in December. So it's been really fun to work on a product in its infancy. Uh, and then the other one is Resolve, which is our help desk. And it's also been exciting to work on that recently because we've really gone back and, and, and doubled down on that product over the last number of months. So And prior to that, I spent a lot of my life working on the Messenger. So that's where my headspace had been for a while. Messenger that most people will know and love, I'm sure, by its popular sound. Um, you were both amongst like some of the earliest hires in that we were like maybe 20, 30 people when you both joined. Today we're over 300 people. Uh, we've gone from like hundreds of customers probably when you joined to like, you know, whatever, 17,000 or whatever was in our latest press release. Um, what's changed? I'll start with you, Colin. This is probably an obvious enough answer, but I feel like the biggest thing that has changed for us is just the structure and the sort of more rigor that we apply to how we actually run the product development process. Has it gotten boring? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <That's> interesting. <yes. laughs> I actually find the opposite. I think when you are unsure what stage any product is at and you're taking on different projects in lots of different ways, the amount that you have to hold in your head at any one time is huge. And actually by getting some sort of a common way that projects are run and knowing roughly where those projects are at allows you to shed a whole bunch of complexity in your head at one time. Everyone has this shared understanding that if uh, something is at a single point in time or a certain phase, you don't need to explain anything else. Just that context is there. It's a good defensive process right there. <laughs> uh, Brian? Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, looking back, like Colin and I started uh, close to the same time, and we actually collaborated very infrequently over the first couple of years because we were so independently focused in our parts of the product. And that wasn't a good thing, really. And recently, we have actually gotten to collaborate a lot more on process. And I, I think where that resonates so much for me is you can't simultaneously be thinking strategically and executionally, but yet we actually ask that of ourselves and that there's this constant melding of the two things. And that's just really hard to do. So uh, I think we've gotten way better at that part of it, particularly recently. Um, the other thing that's uh, a given as you scale is the scale of the feedback that you get. The number of customers that you impact um, is way different. But particularly the feedback, trying to stay on top of that just becomes, uh, it feels like an impossible challenge. So that's something that we've had to work at. And how do you stay close to your customers? Because uh, particularly as a, as a PM, you really want to feel you're tight with your customers. You really understand what their perspective is. You need to feel like you're at the coal face of your product. And the natural extension as you scale is you just drift further and further away from that coal face. So, so like we have like 100,000 active users, monthly active users. Um, I know 80,000 of them. Do. Yeah, well, I'm sure you do. <laughs> but I, I guess like that number was probably in the single thousands when you started. So you've, got, you've gone through like that trajectory and that sort of scale. Do you feel like the weight or the burden, like if you want to change something in the inbox, which is like the core part of, say, the Resolve product, do you feel like, oh my God, there's 100,000 people who do use this thing every day for their job and I'm about to move it? Like, I mean, if I was like the PM on Gmail, I would be shitting it if I had to like move the compose button. Do you feel that sort of obligation or that sort of pressure? To I think like, it's you know? counterintuitive. I think it's actually the inverse. I think we were almost more sensitive to the change earlier on sometimes because you're closer to it, where now it almost can be a little more abstracted. Right. And that abstract is a risk. Yeah. Um, so although Do you mean you, like to say you, you, your favorite customer would write in and be like, hey, Brian, you're after breaking my workflow and you take that much more seriously? Uh, yeah, sort of just because as the numbers go up, they become yeah. – your brain just doesn't adjust to it well. Right. And it doesn't make sense. Oh, it's 50,000, yeah. 100,000. It's yeah, a million. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. What's the difference, yeah, really? Yeah. Uh, it's just a huge number. Because uh, you get feedback in the form of like user reports and like research studies at this point, not like one by one, sort of. Uh, well, and that's true, and I think that's one of the things yeah. that uh, is also a risk if you just rely on that secondhand feedback. And so I, I think the challenge of scale is being able to keep some sort of connection with, it's obviously going to be a small percentage of customers. And that's also, uh, I think, where a lot of your conviction can come from. You have to watch the, the user studies. You have to talk to customers. You have to feel their pain. And that's where you get to con make all the connections. Because if you're relying on, uh, on reports exclusively, then um, I think it's hard harder to actually get that conviction. You don't, yeah, you don't foster the empathy either, I think, as well. One other thing I'm curious about is, like, you know, as Colin, you alluded to, like, we as we added more structure, we uh, potentially got more process and probably shot ourselves in the foot maybe less. What are, in your opinion, like some of the more epic ways in which things haven't gone to plan? 
Oh, there's a few skeletons in that closet. Um, I, like one part I can think of is particularly, and this is definitely something that happens when you have a smaller team, but you can tend to sort of yo-yo too much towards certain initiatives. So this month is all about fixing X, uh, next month is all about fixing Y, and the truth is probably somewhere in between. And with a smaller team, you tend to put a lot of resources one way or the other. I definitely ran wonder experience where we took on and we felt the quality of our product wasn't up to scratch. And we took a two, three month period where we buttoned down and just worked on quality. And gave it the awesome Valley-inspired name of Project Awesome, which uh, I'm not sure how well that flied in the more cynical culture of Ireland um, here. Uh, did it turn out to be an awesome project at the end? Um, don't know if <laughs> I can answer question. that one quite <laughs> well. Uh, Brian, what about you? I think one of the kind of funnier scripts I had, particularly as PM on the message team, was when I wrote a message for feedback in-app. And the message was something like, hey, I see you've been using this feature recently. I just wanted to hear more about how you're using it, how well it's working for you. And then with our messenger had truncation, so it only showed the first few words of the message. So our, our customers were coming in and seeing this message with my face on it that said, I see you, dot, dot, dot. And uh, needless to say, that kind of unsettled yeah. them a little bit. So I had to tell Colin, we got to build that message yeah. preview thing <laughs> in the engage bar. Come on, man. But I think that the bigger ones that stand out more was like I wrote my first blog post actually for Intercom. I wrote a long blog post about the demise of live chat and it's how I'm all moving to messengers and asynchronous messaging that can transition between uh, real time and, and asynchronous and we knew we were uh, fighting against the model of live chat that was in customers' heads. But even years later, we're still building product to let deliver on that promise. Uh, and so I very much feel the pain of when we've had to say no to continue to build on that. So that's one that's kind of gnawed at me of like yeah. of still having to push to push to deliver on what we, we set out. Video is probably another example of that having to wait, isn't it? Uh, totally. Video is something that we have built. We actually talked about it at, at one of our uh, inside intercom events and we, we got it released to beta customers and then we had to de- we, we pushed it off the table we brought it back on and then we had to push it off the table so like uh, and all of this was because we just wanted to prioritize other things and this was very much like as a PM you should acutely feel the pain of saying no because if it doesn't hurt to say no like you're probably not doing something right uh, and so those are two examples of where saying no to those those products really like makes your stomach kind of tighten you know they're also I mean we'll talk about a little bit about about Mark later but they're also examples of like the, the asymmetry between saying we're going to do something and actually getting it done and that there's a real risk I think when you sort of I remember I was at a user conference for a popular enterprise public software company valued about 4.6 billion dollars but we won't say which one but uh, they announced in 2015 the most fanciest sort of live editing multiplayer collaboration all sorts of really really cool stuff and they got a standing ovation at their conference from all their users who were like you know, genuinely blown away by what was going to change their lives, and like they, it was one of those products people use like as part of their actual daily workflow. That stuff still hasn't shipped, and that's despite seeing like a beautiful demo, which was obviously a fancy video rather than an actual live demo. But I think like there is a real danger of like you know you talk about something so long that you you almost cash in on all the reward, except for you still haven't done the work yet. It's like telling your friends you're going to do a marathon. And then everyone's like, oh, congrats, good on you. And you're like, okay, cool. You've got like four-fifths of the joy of doing a marathon already and you haven't set a, set a foot in your shoes. Like so. I think there's a funny thing with that. The, the marathon's actually an interesting example in that uh, in some ways when you're trying to really tackle an idea, uh, 
that's the formulation of the thing that you're building and yet you don't actually know if that's going to solve it until it's out in the world almost yeah. after you've told everyone yeah. um, and so uh, you, you're committing yourself to actually doing it by telling your friends you're saying I'm in for the long haul here yeah. and the short things that you build initially that you think might solve the problem turn out not to be the case and guess what you got 20 more miles to run yeah but it's also such a human tendency to want to tell people about what's coming. Like it, it's not – sometimes you can say, oh, it's deceptive or something like that. But it's actually very human to say, look, yeah. no, we've got yeah, more yeah. stuff coming. I know yeah, it's going to yeah. make you happier when you get this. So you actually have to resist that temptation because you just have to yeah. – stuff is so uncertain of what you're going to build, when you're going to build. And even when you're halfway through engineering, you can still stop. Mm-hmm. So, Both of your backgrounds were as UX designers, UX consultants before being product managers at Intercom. I'm curious to know if you think that helped or hindered. I'm going to guess you say helped, given that you're both still here. Um, but I'm, I'm mostly curious to know, like, is that a good skill set to have coming in the door? Um, I think particularly in the frame of Intercom, it was super helpful. Uh, Intercom's got this very uh, rich designer-orientated DNA uh, from its founders, yourself does, Owen, like really come from that background. And, and I found when I came in early that I was just able to speak that language to intuitively know what was happening and going on. And that was just such a good head start to have. And, and I think it's continued to be a really strong quality or strength to have as, as we continue to grow PMs. And if I'm ever hiring a PM in Intercom, it's one real strength I look for because I know that that's still how we primarily think about how we build product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's no doubt in our heads. It, there's so much you take for granted when you have a design background that's really helpful as a PM. So, like, the ability to do research, particularly if you don't have the luxury of a research team, being able to do research well, efficiently, quickly, is a huge advantage. And problem definition, which we define very much as core to the PM role, like, problem definition is part of design. Any sort of design thing, well, it all starts with defining the problem. So, like, we're explicitly merging what uh, design and PM there is. So, I think absolutely it helps a lot. But the flip side is is any PM comes with a bias from where their background is. And you have to be aware of that bias and you have to, like, figure out where you're drawing that line. So, like, when Sketch was coming around and a lot of people here were switching to it, I explicitly said, I'm not learning Sketch. And part of this was laziness. I didn't want to le- learn a new tool. But <laughs> part job. of it was like, <laughs> but part of it was I don't want the temptation to open up Sketch. Uh, I want to force myself to, hey, I should just be looking at a whiteboard, writing on a whiteboard and taking a photo of it and share my idea that way. That's as far as a PM should be designing there. Uh, I think another thing that was interesting, we had uh, a PM in the earlier days, Luke, who had a PhD in computer science. I remember asking him in the earlier time, I was like, oh, I'm so envious of you. You know, there's so many conversations you're able to be a part of to a much richer extent. And he he was like, you know what, actually, it hasn't helped me that much. He said, I can actually appreciate the elegance of a lot of the engineering solutions way better than you can, but that doesn't really matter so much. And he just has to pull back from his tendency to wanting to get in engineering conversations that aren't productive for him to. I think actually since that conversation, I've never wished I had a deeper engineering, not even expertise, understanding. I mean, a PM needs to understand the structure and how things are built and how they're working. But like usually... The strongest muscle on your team is the engineering muscle. You've got an engineering manager. You've got a handful of engineers. They've pretty much got that one cornered, well cornered. All the other things are where the PM can bring perspective to the table. And I think design captures a lot of those. Not all of them, but a, a lot of those angles pretty well. For sure. And you've both moved from managing projects, sorry, managing products. Well, I guess both maybe. Uh, but managing products to managing people who manage products. How do you then decide where you can 
add value in the process, like jump into the details or where you should just like, you know, take your hands off the wheel and see what happens? Colin? I think I'm going to hark back to the process a little bit already that we uh, spoke about and and this pro- provides some really nice checkpoints for me to be particularly zoomed in on uh, when the team's working on them. Uh, and there's two that I like focus on most specifically as how I can add value as a group product manager across a number of teams. Um, the first one is the definition of the problem. Uh, we specifically write that before taking on any design work and we uh, hone that problem, which is basically like a one-page description of uh, what what is the thing we're trying to solve here. Um, and how we're going to measure the success of it. And, and we'll be really tight on that. And that will go through a good few iterations with the PM, with the team, to make sure we have that right. Because if we don't have that right, we're just not starting from the right basis. Um, the second sort of uh, real checkpoint that I try and add uh, value around is uh, when we uh, go a bit wider and the many possible solutions and then start to narrow on, okay, what are we actually going to build here? Uh, I'll really try and think about, okay, what's the scope for the uh, piece that we're first going to build? What's the sort of like smallest definition of the great idea that we've had that we can get out into customers' hands and to prove that it's right or not right or what we need to learn from it? So there are two really big areas of value that I can add. And now that we have a little bit more of a structure process, across the teams I can I know really where to zoom in on those things right and Brian yeah I think those milestones uh, are critical because I think there's a huge challenge generally of any sort of management role is how how far uh, involved to be or, or where to pull back and having those milestones gives you the reassurance of I don't constantly need to be making sure I'm not missing a, a critical meeting where it's the right chance to try to influence up the product so uh, I think those those checkpoints are critical and then you can also frame it as to the team of hey uh, pull me in when it's useful to you to bring my perspective to it and then also the way we've worked it is actually earlier on in the design concepting stage is where I'll be more involved and then as it's working its way through, perhaps pull out a bit less of the detail. Uh, but I think the short answer to this is it's it's really been tricky. There was one point where I was like, oh, I think I'll go in at the weekly uh, planning meetings. That's the great place for this to do it. And the team's like, hey, hey, you got to back off from this. Stay out of this part of it. So I think it's an important one to be really sensitive to and to try to get right. And I think it's very much an ongoing thing from my perspective to get that balance. I guess the same question, like, I mean, as a sort of person who both manages product managers and also then like you know indirectly manages the products that serve customers uh, the other people you serve are the customers of your products how has your relationship with them changed as you're no longer hands on the product but you know like you, you know when you go to work you help product managers who connect with customers how do you connect with customers these days well, something that we, we're trying to do is is to systematize this because, again, you can easily go a month and go, crap, I, I, haven't, I haven't talked to any customers this month. That is horrific. Uh, so it's, it's shocking how quickly that can just fade to the background. And this is very much, Colin and I have talked before about like forcing functions that we really believe in these for the right things. And so, hey, you got to do a customer day once a month so that you're sitting down and actually working the help desk here and, and talking to customers that way. And when with the sales team, because you need to talk to current customers and prospective customers. So so we're trying to work a system with the sales team so they can actually bring PMs, GPMs, everyone from the PM team into sales calls. So we had something back in January when I was out in uh, SF and the sales team organized a whole set of like 10 customer sessions where we go on site. And that was fantastic and really intensive. And it's hard to know, like, is it better to have an intensive like customer immersion or to have it spread Sprinkled, out? Yeah. I, have no, I have no idea which is better, but I think the intense part of it really kind of sears more deeply into your brain certain points. So uh, at least sometimes that's really valuable. So I I think the short answer is, again, 
the default is that you just get more abstracted yeah. and you've got to force yourself to occasionally be at that cold face. But um, I'm maybe calling this a question for you. Like, how do you divide? Like, I'm tempted to picture the pointy haired boss from a Dilbert cartoon who's like, I talked to four customers today, so here's the thing we have to build. And you have to realize that, like, you're collecting anecdotes at that point. Like, you know, when, you're, when we're dealing at the scale of like hundreds of thousands of people, four conversations might not actually be that important. So when you do these like sort of customer days or when you have these conversations, how do you dilute them appropriately? Um, I think you use your subconscious a bunch. <laughs> and a lot of what I think about those customer calls is just pushing more personality and stories and that they'll connect with lots of the other things that are surfing around in the back of your head. Um, and they'll just put a name and a face and an emotion and a feeling around uh, those things that you felt you needed to do in the first place, but just didn't quite have the conviction or the the sense of who that person was and the pain that they were serving or feeling. Uh, so I often think it's that, like, throw it in there, let it mix around, and, and when you next see a big data point come up, yeah. bang, it's going to sync with it, and you'll know, right, now I've got both the evidence and the sort of a visceral feel yeah. to make this happen. It's like the qualitative and the quantitative. Right, yeah. uh, and, and the brain is a great functioner of that to, yeah. like, just churn away on that stuff. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript, It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Welcome back. I'm here with Brian Donahue and Colin Bentley, two of Intercom's group product managers, and we're talking about all things product. Something that we absolutely did not have when you both joined was uh, any concept of the the M-word, marketing. Um, I'm curious to know how your relationship has started and grown with marketing. I'm sure maybe you both started as cynical as the rest of us. Uh, maybe you warmed up to love them as much as I do now. But uh, how did they play out? I think I'm going to try and uh, not misquote Paul Adams on this one, but uh, he's got a great quote, uh, which is, uh, if you build a great product and no one uses it, 
have you built a great product or something along those lines. And just that really get, building a great product is, yes, something that is uh, nominally what you can call a great product, but also that it's being used by people. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's something that I think is really, really true and has rung true to me the more and more that I've worked here in Intercom. Um, the other thing I think about it is that what I find really helpful often on the marketing side is a very external view of what's going on in the world. Uh, I can think very closely about my customers, the people who are using my product every day, and, and what I see is important for them to build. I'm looking at in the market as well, but I really find that the marketing team bring a whole different angle on that. They think about what's the purchasing decision, the other competitors that I really hadn't considered in my mind. And between us, we fuse that uh, understanding of like, okay, right, what are the really most important things to build here that will satisfy our existing customers, but also give us a new place and space in the market so we can talk about something different. Right. Brian? As a company, we've we've gone around stage and say, hey, we're product first, we're product first. We say that internally, uh, repeatedly, we are product first. And I think there's this real naivety that says product first it actually means product only. And it's like, hey, all you need to do is build a great product and everything else will follow. And, and that's just foolish. What's interesting is actually the best product people, I think, are naturally good marketers and vice versa as well. And that's because you, you can – they're not as separate – as, as you initially think. And I think in, your, in a company, if they are very separate, that's a real problem. If when the product team looks on the marketing page and they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know that they get what we're building or that's, I don't, I'm not thinking about that. That's a problem. I mean, I've actually, I've genuinely, I remember 18 months ago or something, I think it was with their acquire product. I'm like, reframe my head on it. And I actually, just, I went to our own landing page. I was like, wait, actually, this is a really coherent framing of what we're offering it. And it was a real useful way to center where my brain was for something that I hadn't thought about for a while and like that's a success when you're when your marketing team can actually articulate things really well like that that's that's useful for the product team but so much of it is not just like what you build but it's how you frame what you build in your customers heads and if you ignore that you're just you're just bad at building products so like if you think about the naming in your ui that's not just about usability that's marketing that's like how you're positioning what you've just built in your customers heads so that it's actually desirable and useful to them. It's also a chance to sort of take a unique opinion on things. Like I once gave a presentation where I pointed out that things like, you know, the tweet button simply being labeled tweet was actually a very, very important decision. There's another world where that was labeled submit. And, you know, and yes, sure, the label on the button doesn't matter, except for it actually really, really, really does. Same with Facebook's like or whatever. A really nice example of this, I thought lately, was uh, Basecamp in, in Basecamp 3. They have a a tool called Work Can Wait, which is how you disable interruptions. You turn off notifications when you're not working, basically. They could have called this notifications preferences or anything like that, and it would have like bored the shit out of their users, but still being understandable and done its job. But they actually took the opportunity to see these things as marketing opportunities. Like they, you know, Basecamp has an opinion that Work Can Wait, and like Asana or Trello doesn't have that opinion. They have notification preferences, which is a totally different thing. So I, I think the marketing voice when we're labeling and discussing projects, even just for internal use, is actually really important in that regard. And I, th I think it's something that we're still trying to get better at. The PMM, the product marketing manager and the product manager, we're, we've tried to make that a really tight relationship. And it's been hard because we're split between Dublin and SF. But it's critical and, and we, we've invested in trying to make that a genuine partnership. Uh, and I think another example of where we're trying to get better at this is with our intermission, which is basically our, our problem statement, our opportunity statement. And we're actually included the interest story, which is just our own language for it's how you're going to pitch this yeah. as part of this 
central document and trying to get that inner story written earlier up front to start framing this in people's heads. And, and we've even now explicitly said that you can scope. And even as we're pressuring the teams to, hey, make sure you're really scoping down, scoping down, but saying, hey, if it's part of the story, but that's don't, legit. Yeah, don't break the story. Don't yeah. break the story. So yeah. even explicitly getting, you know, what's the yeah. marketing into the yeah. scoping, which we previously were not very good at. Yeah. So one area where product marketing, I guess, like kind of lock horns or at the very least shake hands is like the sort of roadmap itself, right? Uh, and I know last year we worked towards like a, what was called the 666 roadmap at the time, which is we planned six weeks, six months, and six years. We've recently killed the idea of six months because it seemed to be, frankly, more hassle than it was worth. I'm curious to know what went wrong there. So I think there's two points that jump out to me when we talk about the six-month aspect. One is that it became this uncomfortable mix of strategy in the things that we wanted to build over the medium term and then also around planning, which is like a promise to deliver something on a certain date. And the six months had this really dangerous scenario of getting mixed up in that. Everyone external from the company would see, oh, something's on the six-month roadmap. That means I can plan that roughly in six months' time we're going to have this thing. And yet often the product teams were using it as a means to actually just map out what looks like the next most important things for us to build. Right. And so there was this mixed translation that was happening of like, yeah, uh, I, I, people didn't know where it was and we were using the tool for different things. Like it was like neither executional nor visionary. Uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, 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 and yeah, failed on both counts. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and the other second problem that we had with it was that we had this scenario that was rolling, that essentially that at any time anyone could open up the roadmap in the company and it was somewhat of an accurate representation of what we were working for in six months. That taken to its end degree means every day you as the product manager have to come in and update that. Yeah, because yeah. guess what? It took a longer yeah. day yesterday. We, we never took it quite to that extreme, but like because there's no defined points when this thing gets updated, you either never update it or you never think of all the planning activities to make it accurate. So it really fell down in those two curves. Brian, you've been an advocate of the six-week cycle. I'm curious to know what you know. What do you like about six weeks? How do you run and prioritize a sort of six-week work frame? We're really strong on the six weeks now. I think we've we've doubled down on it. Um, and I think what we found, we actually tried it was a year ago because the whole company works on quarterly goals, pretty standard. And we said, all right, well, the product team should work the way the rest of the company is working. We tried quarterly goals, and it. It felt bad. It went bad. It didn't work well. Like it, it, we, I think we did. We give it one go, maybe two goes. I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. That didn't work. That didn't work. And we went back to the to the six week cycle. And and the reason it works so well is it just seems to strike this balance between it's pretty low effort planning that you need to do to think six weeks out. It requires some planning, but pretty low effort. But the commitment you're making is real, and it's a commitment the team buys into and we really fight for. And so that kind of balance between giving a structure to the team, between giving enough predictability, but not to the point where you're putting your finger in the air, or sticking your finger, uh, it's about this, or uh, I don't know, how can we word this more ambiguously because we don't really know what we're committing to. So having meaningful commitments that the team buys into at this six-weekly cadence where you really have time to work at it to get it wrong to get go back to regain ground it's just it's working really well now and i think that's one of the, like the the real foundations of our structure that i'd never leave right now wouldn't wouldn't take away for anything colin you uh, you recently wrote a post about like as a how as a product manager you, you need to kind of embrace goals targets data etc uh, i'm curious to know you know, has your opinion changed since, or like, how do you how do you sort of uh, work in the world of data versus intuition? Um, so I think my post was on a real, like, more specific scenario of less data versus intuition, but more this 
general fear that is that if you put a target on something, that your work will be judged as either good or bad based on that target. And it's so much easier just to see, well, we don't know very much, let's send it out in the world and see what happens. And through a project and testing this, I I was put a target on something, let's see if it works or not. And... As it actually happened, I realized what an amazing learning tool it was Mm -hmm. because I was able to see how roughly my estimates matched up or not. Was I actually happy with where we got to? Where were the areas of our customer segments that weren't using it all? Why did I get that estimation wrong? And so it just became a really rich post-release learning tool rather than it necessarily being a judgment of the success or failure of the project. Uh, We didn't hit the goal. Uh, that we'd set out. We were actually pretty short on it. But I, I could talk in the company about how much of a success it was among those segments that used it and what we needed to improve to essentially make the other segments use it as well. Right. So I, I found it a really useful sort of learning process, basically, of like a tool to learn. So last year you both uh, were kind of like uh, key figures on two of our biggest product projects, which kind of both spanned the entire year or thereabouts, uh, which was a, a rare thing for us. I'm curious what were the lessons or the scar tissue that you're left with after that and how does that change how you'll work on projects in 2017, 2018? So, yeah, last year was uh, some big projects for us. Um, But I think coming out the other end of that, um, I think the key thing for me that we've learned is trying to bake in some of the principles of how we build a product into our actual development process. And so we have a, a mantra that we uh, have around thinking big and starting small. It's a principle that we have. And we now have that process actually much more mapped out in our development process. We take a stage to think big, to go wide, to not consider scope at all. And then once we get a good agreement on what that sort of general think big is, we flip into, okay, what's the smallest definition, conceptualization of this really big thought that we can scope small and get out into the world and understand more. And do you just plan one of those or like, you know, when you're, so I can see how to think big, you might have this whole, you know, this crazy wall full of like batshit ideas that will change the world. And you scope small to one specific do you have like a V2 in mind or is it like let's ship this and see what comes next? Uh, I think what you have at that stage is like let's ship this and then you've got a whole bunch of other ideas that yeah. you're like primed and ready to trigger. A whole reservoir. Exactly. But but, but, but not yet actionable, right? But, You'd have to go and reconceptualize a V2. Or uh, yeah, and I think yeah. you can think very naturally of like strong things you think should be in there yeah. but that it's a, okay, let's ship the smallest yeah. thing, let's wait yeah. and see and then you get good strong evidence that it's yeah. needed and you can go and build it. Yeah. Or something else comes out of yeah. left field. Yeah. Brian? Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is it's depressing how easily you can slip into bad habits and you forget what you did in the last project or what you did last year that worked really well and you just think you're naturally going to repeat it again. And that's not the case. Um, and, and I think to a large extent, we forgot how to scope things well. And so we've really had to build that muscle back in again. And we spent a lot of time in December and January doing it. And I think it's we've already seen, we already feel good as a product team that, that this year has gone well for us. But um, I think that's the lesson is like, actually making this repeatable, uh, we need to be way more deliberate about it than we than we realize. So and the challenge will now be, okay, we've we've regained that ground. Can we sustain it? Have we actually genuinely made it repeatable? So um, that's that's what we're gonna be aiming for. A final kind of left field question for both of you. If you walked back to Intercom when you joined it like three, four, three, three and a half years ago, I guess, um, would you try and impose the process you've now come you've both now come to love on the company? Or do you think the the chaos is essential early days? Um, I think we've had to learn it. And I think the whole organization have had to go through that learning experience. I think you look at 2015, uh, 2014 was figuring out what we were doing at all. 2015 was building a bunch of small projects, scoped really well, but not very, like, inspiring. Mm -hmm. 2016 was, okay, let's go big. 
and go too big. Yeah. And I feel like we've had to go through that as a team to now know what the balance is between the two. Yeah, it's a very diplomatic answer. This is it's one of those, like, you know, you're asked, oh, what was the biggest mistake the Intercom made? And I'm always like, oh, these weren't mistakes, they were learnings. Uh, Brian, what, what's your take? I would happily bring our process now back to when we started. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just like the, the chaos and the messiness is inherent to what we're doing, but it's not something that uh, should just be left uh, with free reign and let dominate things. And that's what the structure can give you is like that ability to like, okay, no, we're here. We're not like, because when we started, it was like barely keeping your head above water, you know? Uh, and uh, I think this sort of structure can actually let you to rise. I'll push this metaphor out to where it doesn't make any sense. But we can actually rise up and, you know, float a little higher above the water there and breathe more more naturally and actually not have to simultaneously feel like you're doing everything, which is strategy and execution. What's going on here? And you're simultaneously zooming in and out and all over. So definitely I would have brought it back. I think one thing, uh, I think so, yeah, I think in that hypothetical scenario that you can bring back the process that you have created and worked on together back to an earlier point, I think you can, like, that would be totally advantageous. I don't think we could ever, uh, if I went into a new company in the morning, I don't think I could apply this down and suddenly it would work uh, because they'll work in a different way and they will essentially have formed their own process in two, three years' time. Brian, Colin, thanks very much. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.